if we are not well, we will live in a state of fight, flight, freeze. And a lot of parents will report that they have a constant state of um, anxiety or they might not call it anxiety, but they might say, my stomach has been hurting nonstop. Or um, later on, they might say, I think I've got post-traumatic stress disorder. The, the way I am triggered by the slightest thing, I am in, in fear. So we are really like, as, as supporters, we are doing... Um, um tough work and we need to be really fit for it you are listening to the eating disorders recovery podcast with me tabitha farrar hello welcome to this week's podcast right super excited about this one i get i got to speak to eva musby um so eva is a mum and she's also a mom that has put a child through an eating disorder. And when I say put her through it, I mean actually helped a child recover via family-based therapy. And like many of us, Eva was not an expert on eating disorders before she experienced having a child with one, or like me having one, or like many other sufferers having one. It's usually not something that we know much about until we're hit with it. And many of us um, afterwards, go on to share the information that we've learned with other people. It just seems like the right thing to do. And I guess that most of us wish that we'd had that sort of information and people had shared more before we had to deal with it. And so that's why we do this. Um, So Eva went on to write a book about her experiences. And you're going to hear today her address um, seven tips for getting a person to eat. It's really great information. And Even if you don't have a child, or say if you're a sufferer yourself like me, this is really vital. Just listen to what she has to say, because you will be able to use this information to help yourself. Here's a a podcast. Um, I'd love to start, Eva, by um, you just telling us a little bit about yourself. Ah, okay. So, well, I've got into the world of eating disorders through my daughter getting it when she was 10, and she's now 17. So she's had uh, very good spells uh, when I thought it was over. But um, yeah, it has been um, quite a a long journey. And um, when she was um, getting really well at age 12, I thought things are good and I'll now want to share what I'm what I'm what I've learned with other parents. So that's how, what got me started writing a book. And so before your your daughter was she got sick at 10, before that, um what what were you doing occupation-wise and had you had any um eating disorder uh, experience at all? No, I, I I thought eating disorders were well I thought anorexia was like really weird. Oh, me I too. suppose it is. I suppose <laughs> it is really weird. But yeah, I just I just thought it would it would be something that happened to older teens, and uh, yeah, when I saw my daughter uh, eating less, I really talked about it as a phase. I just thought it was a phase. I I, I couldn't put my finger on it actually being something that you need to 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 get professional help for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, the first books I got because I did get books. I was speed reading them to find what's the bit I can do mm-hmm. rather than the bits at the beginning of the book. It tells you take your child to the doctor. And I was ignoring that because I thought, yeah, yeah, but that doesn't apply to us. So that's really interesting, Eva. Tell me about 
sort of how you went from that to um, understanding that it was a really dangerous illness? Well, at age 10, I think quite typically, um, like many other age 10 ones, um, she just deteriorated so fast. From one week to the next, you'd go from thinking, oh, this might be all right, to, oh, no, we need to act fast now, and, you know, emergency call to the doctor. So it was just the speed of her her behavior change, probably of her weight loss as well. But it's not like we were measuring it. It was, yeah, her more and more, more and more anxiety around every mouthful she took and every sip of water she took. That really accelerated. So it, it was a no-brainer after a while. Okay. So tell yeah. me a bit more about how that progressed and actually how you ended up getting her through it. So, well, it progressed with us getting... Um, outpatient, you know, it's here is called CAMS in England and in, in, in the UK, um, the outpatient mental health care. But, um, you know, I think three weeks later, she was still deteriorating. And so she ended up in hospital in a mental health unit where they were pretty well experienced in eating disorders. So, uh, she recovered physically very quickly there. She just she just ate for them. She was in another mindset in that ward. She ate, thank goodness. Um, but she did spend 11 months there because we were not managing to feed her reliably when she came home. So that's how it took 11 months before we thought, right, we are taking her home. Whatever happens, we're, we're going to, we think we can now do better because she was just stagnating. And what helped us, a lot of things helped her once we took her home. A big one was getting um, the team here where being uh, learning and being supervised in FBT, family-based treatment, from, from the Stanford people. So um, we really got good, good support. And at the same time, I had been reading and learning, learning nonviolent communication compassionate communication so I got much more skilled and much more courageous at being able to to get her to eat and do difficult stuff and that got her well and how long did that process take after she came out six months I, I would say within two months the progress was already amazing and then um Six months, all the eating worries were gone. The fear foods had all been ticked off. Um, she was discharged, say, 10 months later, after, after she first came home. And I would say it then took another year to see, to see her actually deliberately, um, of her own free will, pick up food off the kitchen top, um, stop checking she could eat out with friends but she'd come home and tell us okay so now you know what I've had so now you can give me the right stuff for dinner um, so it took about a year for all that to become back to really normal and and she really did go back to normal for three years and then she was 15 when something we're not sure what because she was at a good weight something made her relapse so yeah 15 yeah, and the second time, so she's older, um, 
Was it as easy to apply family-based therapy when she was 15? I would say it was even easier. Um, quite reassuring for me because by that time I'd published my book and I thought, well, is my book applicable to teenagers, older teenagers? And and yes, absolutely. Uh, we just got her eating so quickly and I would say nearly so easily. I mean, there were tears, but, uh, you know, we were efficient at it. Yeah. Where we have found it's just been slow is um, for her to be free of the mental um, worries, rigidity. You know, she hasn't relaxed um, around all this, and and the the weight has fluctuated. It's like she, you know, it would it would drop unless we really supported her to just keep eating. So she's not out of the woods quite yet, and. Um, yeah, the, I think that the final bits of getting someone really rid of an eating disorder, I think that bit is still not not perfect. Right. I think we know how, you know, like the phase one of family-based treatment, feeding somebody, I could nearly say that's easy, although that's not true. Uh, it, you know, sometimes a hospital is required. But it's after that, it's a bit more more of a gray area. Yeah, I agree with you there. Um, and I know that that many people, they recover physically, but they, they seem to actually never recover um, mentally, not completely anyway, um, which is very sad. Yes, well, you certainly hope to get someone to the stage where they can live with it without hassle because they can, they can manage it. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, all this time, my ambition for her has been she would be completely free of it and not have anything to manage. But then some things are not maybe in our power and they're not in the realm of what the medical world has worked out yet. Yeah. Um, so you've mentioned your book a couple of times. I'd love you to tell me a little bit more about that. So I wrote this book because I, I was finding a lack of practical advice for parents. So for for 11 months while she was in hospital, we were being told, you will find a way of feeding her, you will. But nobody was telling us how. It was so frustrating. And, uh, and finally, I got some help from the family-based treatment people, the FBT people, and then still we had to complete it. It was like ah, so many pieces in the jigsaw. And once I thought I'd got it with all the communication and the compassion stuff, I thought I want to share that in a really practical way for so that parents can, you know, dive in and get, get results immediately. And I also wanted parents to feel supported emotionally. And uh, I think my book... Um, the feedback I'm getting from parents is that it feels like they've got a companion alongside them that that understands, and I, you know, being understood is a major thing oh, so for important. your well-being. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't. I know sort of what my parents went through, um, and when I was a sufferer, it was it was even longer time ago, so it really wasn't any understanding around eating disorders at all. There was nothing for them, and. Mm. Um, I feel that the support that parents need, the emotional support, is massive. Yeah, yeah, they're they're like um, they're like athletes or something. <laughs> People going up Everest, you know. They they yeah. Well, you've always got yeah. to be on, haven't you? You've always got to be on the lookout. 
Yes. Um, yes. So we were going to talk about um, sort of tips for helping people get a child to eat. Yeah. Um, I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna let you run with it. <laughs> okay. Well, I was thinking that um, American style, we could go for seven tips or seven keys to mm -hmm. helping somebody to eat. I've never done that before because I've written a whole massive book about it. But maybe making it seven keys would sound attractive yeah, to they, listeners. That would be a very good um, headline for the American public. Just <laughs> seven with bullet points and you only have to read the headlines. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then when you do it, it just happens to work. Okay, so I'll put, I'll put a, a, a reality check in here. If it doesn't work right away or if it doesn't um, work, uh, some people get a result immediately and they're so happy which is wonderful and then and then there'll be another thing that you, they need to go deeper into so anything that doesn't work go get more support from my book and from parents groups and from your therapists if they're good so anyway first key I thought was would be to understand uh, the fear mechanism, and you've done a wonderful podcast about that, talking about your own experience of fight-flight. So uh, if we can understand that uh, the person with the eating disorder, and I'm sure this, I, I'm guessing this applies to any age, but I might say our child, that, that, that somebody with an eating disorder is really getting all the physiological um, signs of fear when they think of eating or when they're presented with food. And so they're in fight, flight, freeze, and they're going to kick out uh, to protect themselves. And if we understand that, then we can stop using logic with them. And if we're not using logic, then what can we use? Well, there is actually a piece of research that uh, matches very well my experience, which is what works is quite direct, specific prompts. For example, have another bite. Go ahead, keep going. Go on, darling, pick up your fork. And another one. Uh, yes, I do want you to eat it. Or, um, okay, the potato now. And please make a start on your egg. So uh, that and also um, gentle physical prompts like pushing the plate a little bit forward towards the person. So those things have been shown to work a lot better than vague things like um, uh, or choices like do you want another one or um, which one do you want which can create a lot of confusion or uh, the lecture type of stuff the well the carbs give your body energy or your bones need the calcium and I've done a rather popular YouTube video which uh, equates what it's like for someone with anorexia, certainly, to be presented with a plate of food yeah, uh, with that. doing it's a bungee fabulous. jump. Yeah, it's yeah, fabulous. The bungee jumping one. So the message from that, not point number one, is uh, during a meal time, don't even try to use logic. Uh, don't use rational explanations. It, it, it just adds to the noise which... Um, seems to be in the person's head does that make does that relate to your experience absolutely Tabitha? absolutely does and i was actually thinking this morning about um oh this is a bit off topic but um sort of i think too much we listen 
to the sufferer. And even when I read articles on eating disorders that are written by sufferers or um, articles or blog sites where a person is still an active sufferer and they're writing about how their experience of eating disorder. And we forget that we're actually listening to a person that is suffering from a mental illness, actively suffering from a mental illness at that time of writing or at that time of talking. And so maybe their sort of how you should treat me isn't what we should be going on <laughs> because they are in the place of irrationality at that time. Mm. But yeah. Anyway. <laughs> They'll say, I don't, I don't need to eat. I'm not hungry. And yes. we know that's not rational because we see how little they've eaten. Um, so uh, if we're going to not use logic and, um, and lectures about calories and metabolism and all that stuff, then um, what uh, should we use? And uh, number two, I will go for compassion. And uh, this is to um, really um, um, have a lot of kindness for the person who's struggling to eat, however much they are um, shouting and screaming at you, um, to have a real no-blame approach. Uh, this um, is actually... a very, very key to family-based treatment, which is the best evidence-based treatment for treating anorexia and to some extent bulimia in, um, in under-18s. And I think there's work going on for older people as well. So we, we have some evidence that being non-blaming and being uh, non-judgmental and having un uncritical acceptance of this person we have some evidence that this works so it's not just being nice and touchy-feely and it's not just my opinion because i like kindness so uh, i think for a, a parent it's a massive step to go into this radical compassion so that um, we are not um, blaming because when we blame we are sending danger signals to the other person and that re-energizes re their fight, flight, freeze. So that's not going to help them to eat. Whereas kindness and compassion activates the another system in, in the brain, which is the I am safe system. It's the, uh, I think it's called protect and uh, nurture and protect system. And it goes, I'm safe. And the adrenaline goes down, the cortisol goes down, the, and you're starting to then be able to be more, use your, the person is able to use more of the whole brain, all their resources, which they then say, well, I actually do want to eat a little bit, or I want to please my mom or my dad, or whatever other motivation they might have that enables them to just take that spoonful rather than fight it with all their might. Mm-hmm. I absolutely um, agree. That's a great point. And I think that even for an adult sufferer, it's a really important step, that compassion and un understanding that this is a mental illness. This is not my fault. I'm not doing this to myself. This is actually and you know, something that I have to get treatment for or get help with. I think that compassion allows people to take that step to get help a little bit yeah. more and let go of control. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, a message to the brain that everything is safe because we, even as babies, uh, it was kindness that made us feel safe. It was being being held and loved. So it's wired into us. 
So yeah, and and uh, when you start thinking of compassion, then it can take you quite deep. For example, I, I don't want to go into detail into this because it would take too long. But what do we do about um, punishments? Like if you don't eat, I'll take away your mobile phone. You got to think where you know. Am I being non-judgmental, not blaming? Is my message of acceptance, uncritical acceptance coming across? And there's obviously a, di a difference between loving the person and also saying, I do not accept your behavior. So there's a difference between the person and, and love and a behavior you do not want to condone. So, yeah. So um, on to number three. Um, it is to, for the person supporting the meal to show utter confidence that everything is as it should be, which may require faking it, especially when we're new to this, because we are very frightened that our child won't eat. But um, with, with a little bit of experience and faking it at the beginning, to have this, you know, darling, this is going to work. I know how to support you. Trust me. So you're really asking the person to trust you and lean on you because they cannot do it for themselves. If you, as the supporter, um, look like you are panicking, then um, you're, the person's getting even more of danger signals. You know, I'm really on my own. I'm in danger. Even my mom, my husband, whatever, whoever's supporting me is panicking here. So we learned, in fact, this was one of the key points I learned from our FBT therapists when they came to coach us in our house, which was something we'd asked for for such a long time. And any professional who's listening, it is so worth coaching parents in, in situ, in the real situations. How do you help someone to eat? Key message I got was... Um, do more around trust. So we did a lot around, trust me, I know what I'm doing. So instead of the logical explanations, it was, yes, you do need to eat this. And yes, this will be fine. Trust me. And there might also have been a show of confidence around, uh, I can see you're looking very stressed. I can see you're looking upset. I'm wondering if you're pretty freaked out at the moment. And okay, and that's normal. So I'm not freaking out because you're freaking out. It's normal that you should be freaked out. This happens to anyone in your situation who's making such an effort to eat. So trust me, it's safe to eat even if your blood is pulsing through your veins and your heart rate is up. Even if you're feeling sick and scared, it's safe. So trust me, I'm perfectly confident this is going to pass and your fear is going to pass as well. So Eva, I'm interested in um, your experience with that. Did that actually put, if you had to take on that role of being calm just to give your child the impression of confidence and security, that, that must have actually eventually made you feel calmer and more confident in what you were doing. Yeah, yeah, it, it works both ways. That's a very good observation. Um, so all the same, Tabitha, there'll have been times I'll have faked it. Or what I will have faked it is, um, is patience because, you know, I have had times even when I was very experienced when I felt like walking out the room and slamming the door. 
and saying, I am so sick of this. So there is an element of faking it and it does help you stay. It, it helps the moment to pass. You know, all emotions are a wave. And that's a really good thing for our children or, or any sufferer to notice, as well as the parent. The wave goes up and if you can just get a little bit of support to let it pass, you're going to be okay very soon again. Hmm. Wow. Do you recognize that? Yes, yeah, I do. <laughs> and um, I actually, while you were talking, I was just thinking, I wish, I mean, because I never had anybody help me recover, but I just wish that I'd had someone there to say mm. this is okay and I know you're freaking out and it's okay that that would have been so it just feels so right yeah absolutely you would still have felt some fear but um there'll have been part that says okay well this person that I trust is not frightened so it must be okay just a little bit less into fight flight freeze to be able to take the next mouthful I'm a, I am just so impressed you did it yourself. It uh, it's easy. just It wasn't easy and I always say I did it but I highly do not recommend it. Yes. <laughs> not recommend. Yes. It. Get help. Yes. And maybe people will be um more trusting to get help if they know they're going to be treated with the kind of compassion I'm mm. talking about mm -hmm. that it is not going to be punitive. Yeah. And, and, you know, just to finish on that particular point of, of showing confidence and, uh, and this kind of trust me um, atmosphere you're building, it also means that um, if the meal doesn't go quite well, if really the, the, the person doesn't manage to finish the meal, but they've already done amazing stuff, like they've eaten their first cream cake in the last, you know, they haven't eaten an ice cream in the last six months and they've eaten it and they've not quite finished it. Well, you can still look like you're perfectly confident. You're saying, well, I'm glad with what's been achieved and let's, let's end this here. And that's one possible decision. Or it might be, I have a good... I have a good feeling that you can take another mouthful and then you keep going. So you, you've got all these choices you can make as the person supporting, still looking like you're in charge and you're perfectly confident that this is a process, which leads me to just point any listeners who are um, questioning what I'm saying to another YouTube video I made, which is called Stuck Not Eating. And it goes through all these choice points as the person supporting do you end the meal? Do you replace the calories they didn't eat? Do you do you keep them up all night till they finish the meal? Go through all that stuff. Because mm -hmm. it's it's hard decisions for the person who's supporting. Yeah. The fourth key I suggest is uh, very simple, and it's that anyone who's supporting the meal is on the same page. So often that's the the two parents. I believe that it is um, that there is evidence, but I can't put my hands on it. I think there's evidence coming from James Locke, Danielle Lagrange, the the family-based treatment people, that it is a key uh, predictor of recovery. It's that the the two parents or whoever is supporting the the young person are a team, that they are giving consistent messages. So um, 
yeah, if you imagine you're taking a bungee jump and you've got one person telling you, you're quite safe, I've checked all your harnesses, your helmet's on, go. And the other person comes along and says, uh, uh, excuse me, let me, that's not the right kind of harness. Or <laughs> oh, <laughs> you, know? yes. you can imagine the the sense of safety would would go. And I imagine that extends to the therapist and any anybody else that's of influence or in the situation um, everybody has to be yes. on the same page it really is and it is heartbreaking for so many parents or whoever is supporting someone with an eating disorder I'm very conscious many of your listeners are adults um, that um, it is painful when you have some members of the clinical team who are contradicting each other or mm -hmm. contradicting the parent uh, it is, um, you know, another way of looking at it, it's that the eating disorder will use that to say, I'm not doing what you're saying because so-and-so said the opposite. And what do you know? So it's very, very important for the adults to agree among themselves. And, you know, sometimes, Tabitha, uh, with the best will of the world, I could tell you as a, as a couple, you can be on the same page on the 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 broad brush the the broad lines but when it comes you're both sit you're all sitting there at the meal and there's one decision to make like um i've had my first ice cream i can't have another spoonful i've done my best and you know myself and my husband are looking at each other and going okay is that good enough is that shall we stop while we're on a high or should we keep going? And it's just a little bit of a flicker of an eye contact. And then one of us jumps in and says, this is my decision. Because we can't discuss it in front of her. Mm. And you just hope that the decision isn't so momentous that it's going to do harm if your your other half thinks, oh, no, I wish I wish she or he hadn't, done, hadn't said that. So it's trusting one another as well then, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's like improv. Yeah. And I'm just trying to think of, you know, how stressful that must be for a parent that's trying to help a child recover, but then is not having the support that they need from their spouse or from their partner. Or, yeah. Um, that, that just must be another notch that's just so putting this so high on their, their stress and the support that they need then. It really is. It really is. And because, um, you know, the people who are divorced and the child has um, time with the other parent uh, over the weekend and the other parent lets them not eat for a whole weekend or, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking. And these things are basically it is worth putting effort into that because um, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's evidence that these are predictors of recovery. So if the parents can put the energy into getting on the same page, it's really um, going to pay off. So do you want me to move on to my number five? Yes, please. <laughs> uh, and that is to become a very good body language reader. This is really part of compassion. It's, it's um, when you are in a very, in a compassionate state, when you're not in fight or flight yourself, you can read the other person's body language and uh, listen to what they're saying at another level. And the fantastic thing about this is that you may 
pick up signs that the other person is actually ready to eat. So some of us parents have become quite good at, for example, noticing, mom, do I have to eat this? And that means, please make me eat it. Mm-hmm. Because it's a bit different from um, from uh, getting off the table, pushing the, the plate away and, 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 and leaving the room. You know, right. mom, do I have to eat this? You've got hope. You've got something to work with. And it may be a request to uh, give a very clear, absolutely, darling, uh, I absolutely want you to eat it. Which might sound a little bit hard, but it's also kind. And it might be just a message of firmness that they are needing to justify a massive internal conflict. Um, another bit of body language um, is, um, are they... Is their eye, are their eyes flicking to the plate? Are they twiddling a little bit with the fork? There's a, li- there's a little movement there of maybe I'm going to eat. Oh, no, I can't. Maybe I will. And to pick up on these things might mean as a, as a supporter, you're leaving a little bit of silence because, because that silence may enable the person to just grab their courage in two hands and go for it. Or on the contrary, it might be the moment to just go, yes, I really want you to eat this. Keep Okay, take the next spoonful. Keep going. So there's no, we can't give um, a paint-by-numbers way of doing this. There's so much sensitivity required from the person accompanying that being able to read the signals is, um, is extremely useful. And uh, it will... It's an imperfect art, but just to know that there is that art may help listeners to think, okay, I'm going to try and pay attention to the the subtle stuff, the tone of voice, the gulping, um, the the shoulders relaxing, Mm -hmm. the tone of voice changing. For example, you know, I would sometimes um, hear my daughter going from, it's not fair, it's not fair, how can you make me do this, it's not fair, and then as I would give her compassion, it might become, it's not fair, and you go, okay, she's got it, I'm going to shut up now. Mm-hmm. Because she's received the compassion, the fight has gone out of it, it's, it's, now she's sorry for herself. And why shouldn't she be? She's got loads of reasons to say it's not fair. And if I stay silent now, I've, she's now out of fight or flight and she may be ready to pick up her fork. Yeah, I think that's a fabulous one. And I mm. always know, I'm just thinking about the language you use, use there, there's a big difference between saying, do I have to do this, that between that and saying, I'm not going to do this. Yeah. I've already accepted that I'm going to do it if I'm asking, do I have to do this? I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm just, that's that last kind of, can I get out of it, please? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. And and for some people, uh, I'm not sure if any of your other podcasts mentioned that, they, they actually have a sense of a, 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 an internal voice going, don't you dare do it or I'll kill you or you're bad. Mm-hmm. fat pig or something so to have this well i'm not i'm i you have no choice i'm taking the choice away yes. yeah i think jd willett talked about i'm not sure how to pronounce her name jd yes Ulwet, um talked about this no choice business it, yeah. it can be such a relief yeah and because the the eating disorder will never make the right choice it just won't it won't allow <laughs> us to make the right choice 
So that yeah. taking the choice away is the most freeing thing that anybody can do for a sufferer. Oh, you've, you've put that so well. Yeah. So reading the body language may help to find out when the person needs to hear that from us. Okay, so Tabitha, we've just got two more to go. Mm-hmm. Should we go for number six, which is for the supporter to be, to have a Teflon coating for uh, abuse. This is part of the compassion thing and it's part of understanding fight, flight, freeze from the other person. It's that the abuse ideally can just wash over us, slide over us. We don't take it personally. And we see that the our beloved child, the other person, is very, very scared. And it's completely normal that they are fighting for their life. At some Somehow, for some completely illogical reason, they believe they're in danger. So it makes sense from that point on that they should scream, shout, be rude, do anything to get out of this this meal. And so it's not about us. It's not about us, the, the, the supporter, the companion. Um, we may still put limits on the abuse. We may say, don't, don't kick me. I want safety. Don't kick me. Um, we may still um, stop the behavior, but that, uh, you know, I hate you and that kind of stuff. It can be like Teflon. It can be, oh, there she is. She is very scared. She's in fight or flight and I'm going to do my very best to support her out of it. And the way out of it is through making her feel safe. And I, the way I do that is with kindness. Yeah. So it can be, it, it might be, don't kick me. Are you frightened? Are you suffering, darling? Let, how can I help you? Have another mouthful. <laughs> so this Teflon coating um, will help the companion to not react because we as as the i as as the mother i am so easily in fight flight freeze myself i want to run away i don't want to support this horrible meal i don't want to hear abuse so um to to be able to go to not to be less activated by the other person's abuse and resistance and to go it's about them and i would be the same if i was in their shoes right that that can be quite quite protective and I'm wondering Eva if, if um, fr- um, from a parent's point of view it can ever turn around so that you actually see the abuse as a positive thing I um, and <laughs> it sounds a strange thing to say but I know that when in myself I learned that sort of the more that my eating disorder was screaming like a stuck pig the better I was actually doing I was winning more because it, it screamed more when it was threatened yeah, I, I'm fascinated by that. Um, I haven't been, I haven't taken it to the way of, oh, good, she's resisting. That means I'm, I'm pushing hard enough. I've more like consoled myself to think um, it's a necessary thing to, to go through it. But, you know, that would be a fine mindset as well <laughs> to, 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 to go I must be doing the right thing. Possibly the reason I'm not totally, I haven't gone totally that way is because I have also done plenty of helping my daughter to eat and there's not been fight. Right. 
uh, and she's still eaten something very difficult, but maybe there's been tears from her rather than fight. Mm -hmm. and, and that's actually a lot, a lot better for all round. Um, because, you know, why shouldn't there be tears? It is suffering, yes. but it's, it is not so, it, it's more true that there should be tears than that there should be fight. The, the fight is one layer of um, a lack of self-connection. You know, yeah. it's um, the person fighting what they actually know they need to do. Whereas the tears is, I know I need to do this and it's so hard and mum, you're helping me. Yes. So I can, I can, yeah. um, I, you know, I think sort of what I'm just trying to get out there is, is that the fight is sort of like the first part it's the steep uphill. And then the, the tears is actually almost a bit of a relief. And I'm still having to do this, but that's an even better sign. Um, yeah, I used to know that with myself, and it's obviously different being an adult and, and treating oneself that I had to push myself to the point where you know my eating disorder was screaming at me to, otherwise I was never going to get over that bit and get to the point where I was in tears but still eating and it wasn't necessarily screaming at me anymore it was more of a pity thing um, yeah yeah and yeah so to to, to have the, the 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 fight and see the signs of fight there um, initially is okay this is normal this is what I'm doing it means I'm actually moving on mm-hmm yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm just going to butt in here with a note that Eva sent me. Being the forward-thinking person that she is, she wanted to make sure that when this podcast goes out, that um, this point, key point number six, is really clear. So she sent me some notes, um, and here is what she wrote to me. On the one hand, if we're receiving abuse, it's a sure sign that the other person is in flight, flight, or freeze probably because the disorder makes eating so terrifying. As we discussed, the abuse can validate what we're doing and what needs to be done. On the other hand, there will be more and more meals with no abuse, no tears, no visible difficulty. If as the parent, I know that the meal is big enough and that we're on track with desensitizing to fear foods, then hooray for peace and normality, for both our sakes. It gives us a glimpse of what recovery is like and kindles some hope. So that's a nice clarification there. It's just kind of what we were sort of trying to establish in our discussion backwards and forwards and talking about that at the beginning, the abuse, the tantrums, they signify that the eating disorder is freaking out and it's being challenged and that's good. But after a while, those will die down and that's good too. <laughs> All right, back to the podcast. And uh, that leads me to, to my last one, number seven. And that is um, for the parent or the, the companion, uh, self-compassion, self-care, uh, getting support is a major component of getting someone to eat because this goes on six times a day for several weeks or several months. And um, if we are not well, we will live in a state of fight, flight, freeze. And a lot of parents will report that they have a constant state of um, anxiety, or they might not call it anxiety, but they might say, my stomach has been hurting nonstop. Or um, 
later on they might say, I think I've got post-traumatic stress disorder, the, the way I am triggered by the slightest thing, I am in, in fear. So we are really like, as, as supporters, we are doing um, um, tough work and we need to be really fit for it. And so um, to learn self-compassion, which I learned through uh, the field of uh, nonviolent communication, and um, I've also got references on my website um, for other people who, who who have researched it, and and my my book is so full of it because we need we, we may never have learned self-compassion before and we may have confused it with navel gazing or self-indulgence but it's really about um, nourishing ourselves to uh, keep recovering and keep, and really strengthen the sense of of love which can then radiate outwards and we need it for ourselves inwards so that we can support our child yeah, I think that's another fabulous point. And I also think that it's one that might be the sort of one that people brush over as the least important, but could potentially be the most important. Um, yeah. Because you can't do any of the other things unless you're in this place of actually, um, well, self-awareness is a lot of it, I think, you know, to be able to see I'm getting stressed and I can't get stressed, I have to remain calm and being able to quickly bring yourself back down to project calmness and you can't do that if you haven't learned those skills if you're at the end of your tether at the end of the rope as as we still are even with the best of skills you know when my i had developed so many skills and then when my daughter had her relapse age 15 i thought oh my gosh i feel like i'm back at square one in terms of my mental well-being you know i have the skills to feed her that went quickly but you know i'm i need to just keep back back into the self-care uh, which involves also getting care from others uh, self-compassion doesn't mean you do it all yourself it means um, because we need connection with others we we need to be understood as human beings we need to have to feel we're connected to others so um, keeping ourselves well as the parent or the, the companion uh, involves finding others to hold our hand and I uh, I think t too many parents are doing it alone. They think that getting therapy or counseling is self-indulgent or they don't, whatever. And in, um, I don't know of any treatment for eating disorders where the, the companions, the, the parents get automatically get counseling. Uh, Family-based treatment, everything happens as a family. So there's no chance for the parent to come out with their, their worst stuff in private. So unless, unless the therapist um, offers it as, a, as an extra. So self-care is the first and the last thing on my list. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's a really comprehensive list. Um, I'd love you to be able to tell me, you know, where can people find out more about you? So, website, uh, evamusby.co.uk. So, Eva is E-V-A and Musby is M-U-S-B-Y. It's a completely made-up name. 
um, which I made up to protect my daughter's privacy. Oh, I didn't I thought know if that. I'm, yeah, yeah, because I thought if I'm writing a book and having a website and YouTube videos, I don't want her friends and her employers and goodness knows to have everything. So oh, um, that, that was my deal. Yeah. A pen name. Yeah. So uk, And if people go YouTube and search for Eva Musby, there is no other Eva Musby in the world. So they'll find my YouTube videos. The books are on my website. A lot of the book is available for people to read. Uh, it, there's one or two entire chapters I've put on the website because I wanted them to be accessible to anyone. Uh, otherwise, it's um, you can buy the book anywhere in the world. Uh, through a bookshop or through um, Amazon or Kindle Books or um, Apple Books. And, oh, yeah, the other thing people might want to know about me is that I also offer uh, individual support by by Skype. Um, so that relates to the point number seven, where I know parents need support for themselves. And that's oh. something I can offer myself and that's again the find details on my website and people can um, subscribe to my website I I don't often put stuff up but when I do they'll know about it fantastic um, oh and I've got Facebook as well Tabitha but I am so awful at checking I, Facebook I miss things <laughs> but again you? people will find me there Facebook and Twitter, I'm not very good. Well, I will link to all of those things um, in the in the notes to this, you know, the show notes, so that people can just find you. Click easy. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time this morning. That was just such a lot of information in a pretty short space of time, but all of it so valuable. Good, good. Well, I'm I'm always pleased to have the opportunity. If it can help someone who's listening, then it's precious. Huge thank you to Eva Musby. I have linked to her all the information about her in the show notes this episode. Wonderful to have her on and I do hope that we will hear from her again on this podcast because I think she has some really interesting, insightful things to share. Thanks for listening. I'm Tabitha Farrar. Cheers. And until next time, cheerio. Thank you.